Amen. <clears throat> All right, so um, just really quickly, we just finished a series on our purpose statement and our values, and we're going to be heading back into the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to wait one week before we do that, so that'll start next week in chapter 13, um, pick up, picking up where we left off, but we're just going to do a standalone um, message this morning. Um, actually, Beth and I will be out next week. Uh, I'm going to be officiating a wedding in California, the daughter of good friends of ours um, who live out in Seattle. So actually, Chris Elliott's going to be preaching next Sunday, so you can be praying for him. Um, but that's kind of the plan here. We will finish, Lord willing, the gospel according to Mark between next week and Easter. So Easter Sunday is going to be resurrection in Mark. So hopefully that timing will work out. We'll see. All right. So um, this morning, I'm going to start out with an extended C.S. Lewis quote from the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, from the horse and its, not its, the horse and his boy. Thank you. Um, so it's one of the lesser known books probably in the Chronicles series. Um, there's this orphan boy named Shasta. And there's an aristocratic runaway girl named Erebus, and they end up meeting up through a series of circumstances, and they end up meeting up with two talking horses from Narnia, and they need to make their way back to Narnia. And if you know anything about the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that Aslan is the lion who's the Christ figure in the story, and in the horse and his boy, Shasta, this, you know, orphan boy, who is on this adventure, he first encounters Aslan on a foggy mountain path, so foggy that he can't see this creature that is walking along beside him as he's riding a horse. Um, doesn't know what this creature is. And by this time in the story, he's been through quite a few adventures. Many of them have not gone so well. And in fact, it all began when he finally escaped from this harsh fisherman who raised him. Um, it's not his father, but this harsh fisherman raised him, and, and he was cruel. And so finally, Erebus just, um, or Shasta, sorry, escaped from this guy, and that's how it all began. So here's, here's the story. That's a little bit of background. Here's the extended quote. So, and being very tired and having nothing inside him, Shasta felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale. And Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. I can't see you at all, said Shasta after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said almost in a scream, you're not, not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I'm the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. 
Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions? said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I, <clears throat> I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself said the voice, very deep and low, so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and glad. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad, too. The mist was turning from black to gray and from gray to white. This must have, must have begun to happen some time ago, but while he had been talking to the thing, he had not been noticing anything else. Now the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness. His eyes began to blink. Somewhere ahead, he could hear birds singing. He knew the night was over at last. He could see the mane and ears and head of his horse quite easily now. A golden light fell on them from the left. He thought it was the sun. He turned and saw, pacing beside him, taller than the horse, a lion. The horse did not seem to be afraid of it, or else could not see it. It was the lion from which the light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or beautiful. Shasta knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor over the sea, the king above all high kings in Narnia. But after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he needn't say anything. So, after hearing that, I don't call you unlucky, 
and all of these ways that the lion actually was protecting and providing for Shasta, his first response was, so you hurt Erevis? Because as they were running to make it to King Loon in time, you know, because this army was pursuing them, this lion came and scared the horses and took a swipe and actually cut the girl on the back. So you can see why he would wonder, why did this happen? So he's not told why, but we are told later because Aslan then has an encounter with Erebus, and here's how it goes. It's briefer. Um, Draw near, Erebus, my daughter. See, my paws are velveted. You will not be torn this time. This time, sir, said Erebus. It was I who wounded you, said Aslan. I am the only lion you met in all your journeyings. Do you know why I tore you? No, sir. The scratches on your back, tear for tear, throb for throb, blood for blood, were equal to the stripes laid on the back of your stepmother's slave because of the drugged sleep you cast upon her. You needed to know what it felt like. Yes, sir. Please ask on, my dear, said Aslan. Will any more harm come to her by what I did? Child, said the lion, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. Then he shook his head and spoke in a lighter voice. Be merry, little ones, he said. We shall meet soon again. Then in one bound, he reached the top of the wall and vanished from their sight. Okay, well, that's all entertaining, but what does it have to do with anything? No one is told any story but their own. We struggle with that. We want to know things that we have no right or need to know, and it causes all kinds of problems. And the texts that we're going to look at this morning have much to say to us and to help us in this regard. So let's look at the first text, John 21. The second text is the one that Trevor read just a few minutes ago. So we'll come back to that one later. But first, we're going to look at John 21. So this is after Jesus has risen from the dead and he is revealing himself to his disciples. He has just restored Peter. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) Hey, Peter. Okay, everybody's awake now. Okay, he's just restored Peter. So how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times does Jesus say, Peter, do you love me? Three times. So this restoration is complete. And now look at John 21, 18. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 907. So Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old... You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So that language in verse 18 is pretty cryptic, isn't it, to us? But verse 19 explains that it's a reference to Peter's death. 
And not just that he would die, but what kind of death, by what kind of death he would die and glorify God. So in what kind of dying scenario do you stretch out your hands? Anybody? Crucifixion. Okay, so in fact, that language was understood as a reference to crucifixion in the ancient world. So Peter is going to die a death by crucifixion, just like his Savior and Lord, and he is, Jesus is telling him this ahead of time. So perhaps you've actually heard um, that tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down, which was by his request because he felt unworthy to die like his Lord. Anybody ever heard that? Okay, lots of you. Well, it's possible. The source of that tradition is actually not particularly reliable. Um, what we can reliably believe is that Peter was crucified. Whether it was upside down or right side up, we can't know with much certainty. Um, what we should note here is that there's some interesting irony going on. Before Jesus was crucified, Peter bragged that he would follow Jesus anywhere and not deny him. Remember that? So John 13, 36, I think it should be up there. Um, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So you will follow afterward, but first you're actually going to deny me. You're going to totally fail here. So after he denied, he's restored. And in the verses that follow that restoration, what does Jesus call Peter to do? Lay his life down. You will follow afterward. So Jesus says to Peter, you're going to die and it's not going to be pleasant. You will be crucified, but it will be to the glory of God. So follow me. It's kind of an echo of John 12, just a little bit before that section where Peter bragged about not denying Jesus or not, um, you know, I'll go wherever you want. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, to follow Jesus is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. You hate your life. You die to your own comforts and trying to, you know, grab as much as you can in this life. Jesus is Lord, and you follow him. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So back to... Chapter 21, verse 19, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's a reference to John, the writer of the gospel. Following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it who's going to betray you? So that's just like a um, 
flashback to chapter 13 when they were having the Last Supper. And then verse 21, Peter saw him. He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So Peter just got told that he's going to die by crucifixion, and he's unsettled. It's understandable. You or, I, you or me, we, we might be unsettled if that's what we heard. So is he feeling like, like whoa, wait a minute. Like, is he wondering if he's the only one with such a future? And he turns around, and he sees John following them, and he's like, hey, well, what about him? I mean, isn't this human nature? We face some hardship, and we start looking around. Why me? Like, why do I have to deal with this? What did I do to deserve this? Why don't other people have to deal with things like this? I mean, others seem to have it so easy. Like, what about him? What about her? Why me? Why not me? Seems like everyone else has it better. Everyone else. Whether it's better health, more money, better marriage, nicer house, more time off, better vacations, etc., 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 etc. We look around, we get jealous, envious, covetous. Oh, must be nice. Wish I could dot, dot, dot. So Thomas Aquinas apparently described envy as sorrow for another's good. Isn't that the opposite of the biblical call? To rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep? Both of those are love under various circumstances, but envy is the opposite. I mean, it's, the, it's as old as the garden. Satan was envious of God, and he went after his image to sow these toxic seeds of ingratitude and negativity and discontent. Well, yeah, I mean, this might be paradise, but you're not God. It's like the yeah, but trap, the comparison trap. And the but always trumps and neutralizes any blessings that we have. Well, yeah, you may have this, but you don't have that. And that is really what you want. That's really what would make you happy. So it's as old as the garden, isn't it? And, you know, resourceful beings that we are, we've found ways to throw gas on this thing. Social media is certainly some gas. Constant comparison. One journalist called comparison the Achilles heel of humanity. She wrote this, the human habit of overestimating other people's happiness is nothing new, of course. Montesquieu wrote, if we only wanted to be happy, it would be easy, but we want to be happier than other people, which is almost always difficult since we think them happier than they are. But social media may be making this tendency worse. Research implies that it has a special power to make us sadder and lonelier by showcasing the most witty, joyful, bullet-pointed versions of people's lives and inviting constant comparisons in which we tend to see ourselves as the losers. Social media appears to exploit an Achilles heel of human nature. And women, an especially unhappy bunch of late, maybe, I'm not picking on women here, I'm just reading this quote, um, <laughs> may be especially vulnerable to keeping up with what they imagine is the happiness of the Joneses. Keeping up with the Joneses. Everybody familiar with that expression? Okay. So, wish I had her body or her friends or influence or life or fitness or wardrobe or family or free time or money or whatever. Compare, compare, compare. It's slavery. When we measure ourselves against others, especially when we see others' success, our failures, shortcomings, frustrated ambitions, frustrated desires stand out in even starker relief. 
But listen, what, what you see in the lives of others says nothing about how God views you or loves you. Their lives really have nothing to do with yours. Think about Cain. God rejecting his sacrifice had nothing to do with God accepting Abel's sacrifice. But he thought it it did. All he needed to do, God even told him, if, if you offer the right sacrifice, you'll be accepted. But he was like, oh, no, no, no. That's the favored child. It's because of him that God didn't accept my. You see how the vertical issue turned horizontal in just a toxic, ugly way. No. It's a vertical issue. So actually underneath all of our covetousness and everything else is vertical issue. Why does he have or she have? Why does he get to? Why does she get to? God is loving and kind, but maybe to other people. I mean, maybe we know in our heads that that's fiction, but we believe it anyway. So I was listening to this podcast this week, and a guest made a interesting and helpful point. On social media, we tend to compare. And you know what? If you're not into social media, okay, don't do this. Well, I don't ever spend any time. And, you know, like whatever. Okay, billboards and TV. We can all do this comparison thing. So whatever it is for you. But on social media, we can tend to compare our insides, how we're thinking and doing, how we're feeling about our lives, which is oftentimes negative, right? With other people's outsides, how it looks like their lives are going, even though it's been curated, right? Our inside life with their outside external observable life. Or we compare, it's another tendency, we compare the worst parts of our lives with the best, best parts of those around us. And actually, we, we can oftentimes like cobble that together into this impossible ideal. No wonder we're depressed under, you know, unattainability and our apparent, like, wholesale failure. Any amens out there? Okay. So, Jesus tells Peter, suffering and death is coming his way. Peter looks around, sees John following him. Well, what about him? How does Jesus respond? Point number two, with some clear, embracing words. Verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. (laughs) What does that have to do with you? It's none of your business. Peter, you don't need to follow up on my wisdom regarding how I handle the lives and futures of others. I'll take good care of that. Thank you. You need to follow me. I'm the Lord. You're not. Remember? I lead. You follow. Got it? And I'm preaching to myself here too. I know I'm. So was Jesus saying that John wouldn't die but would live until Jesus returned? No, he was just saying, if it is my will, if I wanted that to be the case, it's none of your business. Stay in your lane, Peter. (laughs) 
he was just, he goes on to write this to dispel the rumor that apparently got kicked up by this statement. You can see that in verse 23. But again, the bottom line is Jesus is saying, you're on a need-to-know basis, Peter, and you don't need to know. What you do need to know is that you need to follow me. That's what we need. That's what I need. That's what you need. That is the splash of cold water we need on our faces this morning. I need it this morning. Anybody else? Okay. Two people, three people. Okay. The rest of you are, no, I'm kidding. There's more hands than that. Um, Listen, aren't you going to need this this week? I I guarantee we're going to need this this week. Like, oh Lord, and I am praying right now, Lord, please make this passage stick in our heads and in our hearts when deadly comparison and jealousy and envy and covetousness rear their ugly head in our hearts this week, would you speak, would you remind us of these words from our Savior's lips? Speak these hard and helpful words to us again and again and again to set us free from the comparison trap, the comparison sins that so easily entangle us. Amen? In Jesus' name, amen. So now I want to lay another text alongside this one to reinforce the application. Trevor read it, Hebrews eleven thirty-two to 12, 3. So point number three, the race set before you. <clears throat> Look back at Hebrews chapter 11. And you have this hall of faith. You're probably familiar. That's why, you know, just he read the first couple verses. Um, actually, the end of chapter 10 talks about how these readers had need of endurance. They were in danger of shrinking back and drifting and kind of wandering off the path and not having their eyes on Jesus and all of that. And so he's saying, no, you have need of endurance. We are of those not who shrink back in unbelief, but who believe to the preserving of the soul. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By it, the ancients were commended, approved. And then all of these examples, Abraham and and Moses and so forth. And then in verse 32, He's like, this chapter's long enough already. I don't have time to talk about everybody, but let me just list them out here. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who, note it, through faith. Remember, it was by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith earlier in the chapter. So all these folks, through faith, what'd they do? They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Daniel right? Lions then quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women even received back their dead by resurrection. Think of that woman and her son, Elijah. And then without skipping a beat, in verse 35, it says, some, and what is presumed here is through that same faith, some through faith were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life, the resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. Again, this is through faith. Some were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. So 
just to put this in stark relief and really make it clear, did you notice the contrast in verse 34 and 37? Look at it together with me here. In verse 34, it says, Some, by faith, escaped the edge of the sword. You see it? Now look at verse 37. Others, by faith, carried over from 36, they were killed with the sword. So you could maybe call the first category the victors, and the second category the victims. But they both lived and died by faith. They both lived and either conquered or were conquered by faith. Actually, Phil on Wednesday night at worship practice pointed out another one. Abel, early on in the chapter, by faith died at the hands of his brother. And then Enoch, by faith, was taken up and he didn't die. Which would you pick? And God didn't love one more than the other. God didn't accept or approve of or commend one more than the other. God was not pleased with one and displeased with the other. Look at verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, well done, good and faithful servant, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So listen, even earthly blessings and deliverances are only tokens, they're only foreshadowings of the full and final blessing that is to come. And those who were delivered, who conquered, they only received a token of what was promised. And those who were delivered up to suffering and death, who were conquered, did not have those promises taken away by their suffering. In fact, none of God's people will receive the fullness of what he's promised until every last one of us of the redeemed cross the finish line. It's kind of like a wrestling match. There's individual matches, but the team doesn't win until the last wrestler wrestles, wrestles wins the match, and then the whole team wins. So let's keep reading here in Hebrews 12.1 now. Therefore, in light of that, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and lay aside every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before you. There is a race that is set before you. Who does that? You don't choose your race. God sovereignly chooses your race, your path. Some of those believers in chapter 11 ran on a path filled with victories and deliverances. Some of those believers in chapter 11 ran on a path filled with suffering and they were conquered. We want to know the why. We want to check in on God's wisdom for why he determines it this way and not that way for us and for others. That's not for us. We only hear about our story and really only about this much far in front of us, right? 
God is infinitely wise. We dare not look around and pine and wallow in self-pity and envy and bitterness and all of this stuff that, like all the bitter fruit that rises from that toxic root. Because if we let that stuff grow, that's why we slow up and we drift and we wander off the path. This is so easy to see others who have a race that we prefer to run. What does that have to do with you? It's none of your business. You don't need to check up on God on how he runs the universe. You and I, we need to run the race that's set before us. He's the Lord, we're not. He leads, we follow. But there's also lots of encouragement here. So that's a hard word, but it's a freeing word, right? It's not hard for hard's sake. It's hard to set us free from the trap of comparison. We're not the only ones who have suffered. Like, no matter what you go through, Job is part of the great cloud of witnesses. You know, there's, there's like lots of people who have suffered as well. And by faith, they endured. Let us also, like them, run the race that's set before us. So listen, these texts don't mean that we should never look around. The issue is how and why we look around. In fact, Hebrews 11 and 12 is in the Bible to help us look around in a way that's helpful to you and me running the race that God has set before us. So point number four, looking around. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, literally it reads, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses set around us. And we're supposed to hear the parallel with the race set before us. You have a race set before you and you have witnesses set around you and it's all to help you. So since we have so great a cloud of witnesses set around us, laying aside every weight and sin, let us run. Let us also run, just like they did. So we have this great cloud of witnesses. I mean, what are they doing there? How is that supposed to help us run? Are we supposed to be motivated because their eyes are on us? Like, you know, down at the Chase Center right now with this CrossFit competition, um, some of the competitors might be motivated by the fact that their friends or their significant other or somebody that they, you know, really want to impress is looking on, right? And in English and in Greek, actually, the word witness can have various meanings. We can be a witness to a crime or an accident. It's kind of a passive observation, right? You were in the right or we could say wrong place at the right time. Um, but then you could be called upon to witness to what happened, and that's active, Right? give testimony at a trial. It's active communication. Well, which is it here? What kind of witnesses are these? Well, remember, chapter 12 follows chapter 11. So the point is not that we're motivated to run more faithfully because saints are just kind of passively, passively you know, floating above us and, oh, that's interesting, you know? Like, the point is that the lives of the saints who've run and finished the race set before them their lives speak to us. They are encouraging, cheering us on, as it were. The blood of Abel speaks. 
Through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. They're cheering us on. Their examples can encourage us. We're not the only ones who have suffered discouragement and disappointment. We're not the only ones for whom things have not turned out as, they'd, as we'd hoped. We're not the only ones who've, who've known this ache of exile and just longing for home, our homeland and just oftentimes feeling out of place down here under the sun. And think about this one. Remember he said, I don't have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson. I mean, Gideon was a coward. Anybody ever struggle with that? Like, oh, that's helpful. God gave him grace to run the race all the way to the end. David, like, blew it big time. Well, guess what? We're not the only ones who failed miserably, and yet there was hope, and David made it all the way to the end, and if you've failed horribly, miserably, there's hope for you too. So this is the kind of looking around that God encourages and provides for us as a gift, the examples of others who've gone before us. We could think about it this way. We get in trouble when we do the like superiority complex or the inferiority complex, right? Like when we look around and we look down on those, when we have successes, we think ourselves better than others. We get in trouble, right? Scorn and disdain and prideful superiority, blah, blah, blah. We also get in trouble when we look around and look up at people who are doing better than us, you know, by certain metrics. And we give way to self-pity and we wallow in our inferiority. Well, there's a different way to look up and look down. Like, to do it in faith. We look up to those who've run well and we are inspired and helped and encouraged. We admire them and we want to emulate their faith. Actually, chapter 13 exhorts, in, in Hebrews, the writer exhorts to look at the, the way of life of their leaders and emulate their faith, imitate their faith. And we can look down, and again, I'm using it for the sake of the point here, and be warned. Like Esau is a warning in the book of Hebrews. Like, you don't want to go that way. If, if you look down and see the kind of wreckage of unbelief, you don't go tisk tisk. You're like, oh, Lord, please keep me from. And also, if you look down and you see brothers and sisters floundering and wandering while you're running, you can encourage them as long as there's still time so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what chapter 3 and chapter 10, you know, encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. So don't look around and compare and give way to complaint and covetousness. Look around to receive examples and encouragement and to give encouragement. And then finally, most importantly, point, four, point five, look to Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. He had a race that was set before him and it was a very hard race. In fact, a race that 
even the hardest race among us human beings on this earth does not hold a candle, which is why he goes on and says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the main point, whether from John 21 or from Hebrews 12, like, stop looking around. What's that to you? Follow me. Or from Hebrews 12, let's run the race that is set before us. Run your race that's set before you by infinite wisdom, looking to Jesus. He's the founder. He's the pioneer. He's the trailblazer of your faith. He started it. And he's also the perfecter of our faith. He will finish what he started. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his throne blameless with great joy. So fix your eyes on him. So brothers and sisters, just because it's human nature, it's so common not because I'm, you know, picking on anybody in particular. We all need this. Let's stop looking around in comparison and licking our wounds in self-pity and unbelief. If we are in Christ, we have been treated infinitely better than we deserve. And I don't say that to minimize any terrific suffering because, man, you can, you can go through some terrific su- suffering in this life. But the infinite debt of sin has been forgiven. If you are in Christ, you have been forgiven an infinite debt. And you have been given an infinite amount of mercy and grace now and forever. And there is soon coming a day when every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more suffering or curse or pain or death anymore. And the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what will be revealed to us. And our present afflictions are producing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So even if you are a victim and you suffer deeply on this race set before you, you can trust your Savior and you can know that he is with you and for you all the way home. So Tim Keller says this, Jesus is the only master who, if you find him, will satisfy you. And the only master, if you fail him, will forgive you. Again, remember the context of John 21 and the restoration of Peter. Every other master says, if you fail me, I'll curse you. If you find them, you find out they really don't satisfy or deliver on their promises of satisfaction. So when Jesus speaks a hard word to us, what is that to you? Follow me. He is after our joy. He is after our freedom. He is not trying to take either one of those things. So Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch watchmaker. 
who later became a Christian writer and speaker with her family. She worked to hide many Jews from the Nazis and help them escape. And she and her father and sister ended up in a concentration camp. As a result, her father and her sister died. She ended up being released and spent the rest of her life caring for others and writing and speaking. And she wrote this. It's a good summary of what we've been considering here. And we're going to be um, transitioning to the table here in just a minute. She wrote this, look within and you will be depressed. <laughs> look without and be distressed. So whether that's in the world and the news and all that's happening or the lives of others and why not me and why me and look to Christ and be at rest. So look to Christ, brothers and sisters. He has been here. He's been there. He blazed the trail. He's waiting for us at the end. He's with us through it all. He's for us through it all. Let's run together, learning from each other and from those who've gone before us and looking to Jesus all the way. Let's not get entangled with comparing ourselves to others. Let's follow Jesus. Amen?